from the studios of Farm Journal Broadcast. This is U.S. Farm Report. Welcome to U.S. Farm Report this weekend. I'm Tyne Morgan, and here's what's in store over the next 60 minutes. The controversy over potential tax changes continues to play out. The criticism is based on a incomplete uh, analysis of the, of, the, of the tax proposal. Why Washington says it won't impact most family farms, yet one tax expert says it will. One crop disease is tormenting cornfields in the east. We are hearing a lot of reports of 60 up to even 100 bushel yield hits. But is it changing the overall crop production picture this year? A veteran's fight to find purpose. I wake up every day and I feel like I have a perfect purpose. How 9-11 was a defining moment as this veteran is on a mission to help others heal as well. And in John's world, how are the bees doing? Now for the news, the debate over potential tax changes coming out of Washington reaching a new high this week, with both sides of the argument weighing in on just how the policy proposals will impact family farmers. Especially when it comes to possibly eliminating the so-called stepped-up basis provision. While the House Ways and Means Committee's version of the tax proposal did not include the change, the bill will be in markup soon, with committee chairman Richard Neal, a Democrat from Massachusetts, saying there's no plans to touch stepped-up basis for now. Vilsack defending the administration's tax proposal to Agritalk's Chip Flory this week. They've forgotten in their calculations and review, they've forgotten about the exemption levels of a million dollars per person, $2 million per couple. If there's a a homestead, $2.5 million per couple. When you apply that combined with uh, the exemption for owner and operator, uh, you get 98% of the farms, almost 99% of the farms not uh, covered by this. However, farm CPA Paul Neifer says the question is what definition of a farm did USDA use in that 98 to 99 percent figure? He says if USDA only uses farms that make the majority of their income from farming, more than 75 percent of those farms would be affected. Agritalk also speaking with Republican Senator John Boozman of Arkansas this week, citing a recent study that found the majority of family farms would be impacted by the White House tax proposal, even with exemptions. Every farm group has come out against it, but the administration desperately needs pay-fors for this massive spending package that is probably three and a half to four and a half trillion dollars. They need pay-fors, and this is one that they they simply won't let go, even though it would be uh, devastating to family farms, and then also small and medium-sized businesses. The Senate has yet to comment on whether stepped-up basis changes will be in its version. As harvest gets into full swing, a disease is cropping up in Midwest cornfields, and experts say tar spot could result in significant yield losses in some cases. Farm Journal associate field agronomist Missy Bauer says rainfall and long periods of leaf wetness are responsible for the disease this year. It shows up as small raised black spots scattered along those leaves. Bauer tells us it's almost unbelievable to see how big of an impact tar spot is having on yields right now. In some cases, she's seen irrigated cornfields yielding half of what the farmer would normally see. And she says the impacts are in kernel size, not ear size. We are hearing a lot of reports of 60 up to even 100 bushel yield hits where these plants really got killed prematurely. You think, well, how could we really have that big of an impact on yield? It's all going back to the kernel size. Now, fellow Farm Journal 
field agronomist Ken Ferry calls the cases of tar spot in Illinois fields unprecedented. African swine fever is moving closer to American shores. This time, the disease has been confirmed in Haiti. The country reporting its first case of ASF since 1984 to the World Organization for Animal Health. The outbreak started on August 25th near the border with the Dominican Republic and there on a farm with 2,500 susceptible animals. A ransomware attack hit a cooperative of corn and soybean farmers in Iowa this week, forcing them to take their computer systems offline for a time. It impacted new cooperative in Fort Dodge. It's reported the attack was carried out by Black Matter ransomware. The criminals reportedly demanding $5.9 million. New cooperative did not say whether it paid the ransom. It said in a statement it's that the attack was successfully contained and it contacted law enforcement. A person close to the company says it created workarounds to receive grain and distribute feed. Rumors were flying this week about possible changes to the RFS. Reuters says the EPA will reduce the mandate for last year, next year, as well as 2022. For last year, the number will be 17.1 billion gallons, and for this year, 18.8. It says the agency will set the level for next year at about 20.8 billion gallons. Ethanol would be hit the hardest, as you can see, all falling below the 15 billion gallon mark. Reuters makes clear these numbers are not set in stone, saying that they are still subject to revisions before clearing the interagency review process. Senator Charles Grassley of Iowa and ex-secretary Tom Vilsack speaking on AgriTalk about the issue this week. And I don't know the rationale behind it, but it could have something to do with their promoting of EV vehicles. It surely can't have anything to do with their caving into uh, big oil. At the end of the day, I think what people have to understand about, about the RFS is the most important thing to it is stability. The most important, uh, in my view, the most important thing is to be able to count on the numbers that you're provided. Now, I contrast that to the previous administration that basically gave you a number and then basically through a series of waivers, reduce that number. Farm Journal's Jim Wiesmeyer says the proposed levels are also still shown as being under review at the Office of Management and Budget, where they have been since August 26th. That's it for the news. We need to take a quick break, and then Mike Hoffman has a check of your weather next. Mike Hoffman joining us now. Mike, fall greeted many around the country with temperatures that actually felt like fall and parts of the Northwest even seeing some rain this past week. So are the weather patterns producing some significant changes that you're watching closely? Good morning to you, Tyne. Well, it is fall, so we're going to see some changes, but I don't see any big changes this coming week. In fact, a fairly tranquil weather pattern overall. Boy, has it been wet with some tropical moisture. Tennessee Valley all the way down to the Gulf Coast root zone showing that it's gotten drier. Parts of the I-80 and I-70 corridors you can see there. Parts of northern New England, upstate New York. It's gotten a little drier in far, the far southwest. However, it's improved a little bit over the northern plains, and it's improved a little bit over the Pacific Northwest, and it's not as dry over the northern Rockies. Now, the longer-term drought monitor, we're still seeing pockets of drought there, or dry conditions, let's say, over the central plains. It's that I-80 corridor where we're starting to see some moderate drought setting up in places. But it's still the west and the far north that's uh, the worst, obviously, up along the Canadian border, back down into uh, California and Nevada. Those are the areas that have been in a drought for a long period of time and continue to be at this point. Now, as far as the jet stream going forward, uh, heading through this week, we're going to see a ridge uh, developing through the middle of the country. It's still a trough in the east, northeast, and northwest. Most of the south, not a lot going on. 
And then you can see as we head through the rest of the week, we'll see that ridge shift over the uh, Great Lakes a little bit. And then uh, heading off to the east, and maybe a, a trough setting up over the Great Lakes by next weekend. But overall, there's not a, any uh, look for big storm systems going from west to east during this week. So let's check out Monday. Very weak system moving through the western Great Lakes. A few showers, parts of Michigan, Wisconsin. Stationary front from south of Florida into a Texas with a few scattered showers and thunderstorms. And we have the next system coming into the Pacific Northwest. By Wednesday then, we will see that moving through the Northern Plains states into the Central Rockies with scattered showers along that. I doubt that has much moisture. This will be hit and miss showers and storms from Texas on up toward that front and maybe lingering over the mid-Atlantic, otherwise high pressure through most of the Corn Belt. By Friday then, we will see the uh, storm system starting to set up over the western Great Lakes. Showers and uh, scattered thunderstorms down along the front into uh, the parts of the southwest and Texas. South Florida, same idea. Few showers over the northern portions of the Great Lakes. So let's check out the 30-day outlook. I'm going to go above normal from the northeast mid-Atlantic through the Great Lakes. Most of the plains except for Texas and Oklahoma and then above normal throughout uh, most of the uh, southwestern and central portions of the Rockies near normal elsewhere. 30 day outlook for precipitation above normal in the eastern parts of the country from the Great Lakes Tennessee Valley to the east coast. Below normal central and southern plains and below normal also for most of Nevada and California just to continue that drought out there. Uh, time. All right, thanks so much, Mike. Well, still to come, the harvest forecast is it impacting harvest progress? And what is the quality that our analysts are hearing about? That's next on U.S. Farm Report. Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report this weekend. Naomi Bloom, Bob Utterback joining us. Well, Naomi, harvest is progressing quicker in some areas than others. We know we had some rain, uh, but as you look at some of the harvest reports coming out of the field, what are you hearing from the producers that you were talking to right now, Naomi? Very mixed results for yields. I, I can't stress it enough. In places where we thought the yields would be fantastic, like eastern Iowa, I'm hearing the silage reports when they're doing the appraisers, they were expecting 230 coming in at 200. And then hearing different results throughout uh, Minnesota where they're doing some ch silage chopping there, we're hearing the praise numbers coming in near 150 to 175. North Dakota corn yields coming in 150 to 175, but then over in Indiana, where it had been mostly a garden spot, we are hearing 230s. So it is very mixed all over the place. A lot of it stemming, of course, of where they had the most heat, the least amount of rains, the most amount of rains this summer. But I think what the biggest thing and the biggest takeaway is that it's gonna be a little tricky to see that bigger number that the USDA is suggesting on the USDA reports. Yeah, Bob, I mean, we're hearing about some issues in field like, like tar spot, yet that's not in every field. You know, we have to keep that in mind in some places are producing better yields than they expected. So when you look at things like crop conditions, I mean, just this week, USDA upped crop conditions significantly in places like Illinois. Do you think we have an accurate gauge of the production picture this year yet? I think the Northern market analysts will be bullish and the Central and Southern market analysts will be bearish because I got Ohio, I got some guys in Indiana saying they're gonna have record crops. I got guys in Southern Indiana 
say they got the best corn crops ever. We got guys in Arkansas saying the best crops ever. We got guys in Missouri saying decent. So I think the good is good, but the bad is not as bad as we thought back there in June, July. So I think there's room more for the acres to grow just a little, but not sharply. When you look at a story over the last 30 years, the odds are about 50-50 that the corn and mean yields will increase between September and October. I think there's probably like now probably a 60 to 70% chance. But the question I got is, will they increase a little acreage? Because you're not going to have any abandonment like we've had in the past. So I have to lean to our bearish, mildly bearish supply. But I think a lot of that bearishness is already factored in because remember, we're over $2 off the high in beans and over $1.40 down in corn off the highs. Yeah, Naomi, whether that bearishness is factored in or not, I mean, we can debate that all day. But as you look at producers right now that are harvesting and they're debating right now, do I store the crop? Do I sell it off the combine? Do I start looking at hedging 2022? I mean, what is your advice for farmers right now making those decisions? Well, sit down and look definitely at your spreadsheets. Think about your cost of production. Know what you can lock in for inputs already or not. I think the bigger thing, though, as far as the bull bear argument also is going to be coming to play more as we head into next week in that quarterly stocks report. There's a lot of factors going into play with that quarterly stocks report. When you stop and look at how tight basis is and how strong it is right now, it's not normal this time of year. That makes me think that the quarterly stocks and the old crop ending stocks are still tighter than what USDA is suggesting. We'll get that answer next week on the 30th. Then also you have to keep in mind what is happening with all the outside market news between China, the value of the U.S. dollar. Commodities in general are walking a tightrope of support prices on these longer term uptrends. And we're going to see that clash and that head to head battle, I think, finally get resolved in the coming weeks. So we'll know for sure if we have a reason for prices to continue upward for agricultural commodities or does a larger supply surprise us? Do ending stocks come in a little bit larger than what the USDA might um, say or what traders are thinking. So we'll know soon enough if we should be storing more because the supply is not there or if we should be a little bit more aggressive with our sales. Yeah, real quick, Bob, do you agree with that? I think overall, yeah. Um, the one of the concern I have, I was talking to a farmer this morning down on the Mississippi, down around St. Louis, the base, the carry in the market is substantial and the cash market is telling us something that the board is not. The board's only paying us like 13 cents well, from December to July. So the market is not telling us to carry, but the cash market basis at certain terminals is saying carry. So I, I, I suspect that the, the quarterly stock report might suggest that it'll be a kind of a bullish. This October report will be, will be a little bearish, but they'll offset each other. I think farmers are filling the grain bins up first. They're gonna fill it up and it's only the last at the end of harvest, will we get that flush of basis, widened basis? But I think the November, December bounce will occur seasonally. Well, input costs are also playing a factor. We'll talk about that later on U.S. Farm Report. Well, as John is busy harvesting in Illinois, he has an update on a different crop. Not long ago, the health and population of U.S. honeybees were subjects of great concern. I thought this would be an appropriate time to check in on those pollinators, as it's about time for me to lightly disc 
a third of my pollinator plot in strips as a rejuvenation practice and weed control. Now on the whole, the plot has worked about as predicted, but several species to me seem to be kind of running out of steam, obviously not the goldenrod. Nonetheless, since this is my first plot, maybe this is normal. The larger question is whether efforts like this pollinator plot are helping to stem the loss of pollinators, especially bees. This turned out to be a trickier question than I thought. The EPA report suggests that colony collapse disorder has essentially faded out as a cause of population loss. In fact, losses have essentially returned to the levels typical for the early part of the century, between 20 and 30 percent. This has taken much of the heat off of the use of neonicotinoids, a popular seed treatment, as the main driver. That said, another study by universities in Maryland and Arizona showed no progress over the last decade in reducing colony loss. The trouble for this latter number, for me, is that it was a self-selected survey of about 7% of all beekeepers, which means those who bothered to respond. In my experience, surveys like this tend to receive a much higher response rate from people who are unsatisfied with the status quo, and hence, it may be overstating the loss. It did indicate that the losses last winter may be the largest in years, perhaps as high as 45% of colonies for whatever reasons. Meanwhile, beekeepers have been remarkably successful in offsetting colony losses with management practices so that the lack of pollinators has not been much of a problem. The bottom line for this whole situation for me is one, we can barely count people accurately in an expensive census, let alone bees in the wild. Two, pollinator demand likely has dipped as almond trade declined with China, so colonies may simply be lower due to demand. Three, neonics may be a harmful factor, but only one of dozens. And four, my uninformed guess is we will find a large part of the problem is rooted in climate change and management. At any rate, my plot is open to pollinators of all kinds. And this summer, I saw more, more monarch butterflies than I have in decades. So I'm calling it a win. Thanks, John. Machine Repeat has tractor tails next. Join Andrew McRae for Farming the Countryside, a farmer-focused podcast all about production agriculture. Brought to you by Pivot Bio Proven, the nitrogen-producing microbes that stay put, whether or not. Visit pivotbio.com. Hey, folks, welcome back to Tractor Tales. This week, we're off to Perry, Iowa, to check out a Massey Ferguson 165. My dad was the second owner, and I am the third owner of the tractor. He lived on a dairy farm and he raked hay. He planted corn with it. He mowed ditches with a mower on behind. When I used to ride on it, I'd sit on the toolbox or on the fender and I'd almost fall asleep and he'd get mad at me and try to wake me up to stay awake because he didn't want me to fall off. <laughs> My dad always had it under cover in his barns and stuff. Took very good care of it. We did paint the sides of it just to keep it and keep on passing it down the line. <laughs> yeah, compared to this tractor, compared to what I drive in the fall, big four-wheel drive, I'd much rather drive this one. <laughs> it's a lot, it's more my size. Just memories of my dad having it and me riding on it with dad. You like this tractor, right? Yes, I do, yeah. Well, like I told 
bill this morning. So this little tractor is fun to drive. I like it. Well, could the future of technology already be here today? Our technology is series continues, but first a veteran's fight to find purpose also produced a mission to help other veterans do the same. We'll show you Kansas City Cattle Company's story of grit with grace next. U.S. Farm Report is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast. Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report. Trusted, timely, tradition. Grit with Grace is brought to you by Zoetis. Your dedication runs deep, and it fuels everything Zoetis does. To protect and support cattle and those who care for them, we are Born of the Bond. Learn more at bornofthebond.com. Well, the recent anniversary of 9-11 brought reflection for many Americans. And for veterans, the anniversary combined with recent events in Afghanistan stirred up a mix of emotions. But for one veteran, 9-11 not only was a turning point in his life, but what's happened since has created a fight to find purpose. And that purpose embodies grit and grace. 40 miles north of Kansas City. Heading over to go see the some of our mama cows. Is where you'll usually find Patrick Montgomery. This setting is more of a sanctuary for a man who knew nothing about raising cattle a decade ago. I kind of had this epiphany of uh, an opportunity to start a beef company in Kansas City that, that really kind of bridged the gap between agriculture and the end consumer. But even that passion wasn't something Montgomery found fresh out of high school. Instead, it came a little later in life. September 11th was probably the catalyst. Montgomery was sitting in a sixth grade class, unable to forget his teacher's reaction to the news that the first plane had just hit the Twin Towers. I just remember seeing tears stream down her face, and I just made a vow that if I was of fighting age and this war was still going on, that I'd go do my part. And after Montgomery graduated high school, he fulfilled that promise. I actually started out as a ROTC cadet. I got a ride to Northwest Missouri State for, for that. Throughout that first year, I kind of figured out the officer career path wasn't what I really wanted to do. And so enlisting in the Army is what he did. Uh, we just started the surge back into Afghanistan and started pulling out of Iraq. Um, so it, it was a very busy time, a lot of deployments, a lot of training. And during his first deployment is when his world quickly changed. You know, I had a, um, a brother-in-law, he was married to my sister. They met when I was a freshman in high school, uh, and he was kind of the, the reason that I chose the career path of the 75th Range Regiment. His brother-in-law, Jeremy, was on his eighth deployment in the central part of Afghanistan, Montgomery in the southern part of the country. He ended up getting killed in a firefight in Paktika province on June 14, 2011, um, and I was fortunate enough to be able to fly up to Bagram to meet his body and be able to bring him home to my sister. An honor to bring Jeremy's body home, but one that came with his own struggles. It took me on a pretty dark path afterwards. Montgomery traveled down the dark path for two years and ultimately one where he decided to not re-enlist after 2014. They don't tell you how tough it's gonna to be, the fact that nobody in the civilian world has the same camaraderie that you have when, when you're in the military. So you know, it was like exiting and I, I, I was fortunate enough to have my wife that kind of kept me on the straight and narrow, but you know, I was back at Mizzou and you're like, man, I, I, don't, I don't have any friends. I'm the old guy in the classroom now. His own struggles to find a purpose created a mission to help others find the same. There's a lot of carryover from the military, not only to the agriculture community, but also to business. And that's how Casey Cattle Company found footing, not only veteran owned, but veteran operated. 
the adaptability, the work ethic, all those skills you learn in the military carry over very nicely to um, the agriculture community and also the entrepreneurship lifestyle. Being able to adapt helped KC Cattle Company not only build a business, but pivot at a time when the COVID-19 pandemic caused so many others to struggle. 2020, COVID was um, very good to our business. People can find protein on their grocery store shelves. Uh, so they started looking online. And so that, that was tremendous growth last year. While Montgomery's business plans have changed, sometimes the unplanned events can produce the most pleasant surprises, including some newfound fame in 2019. We had uh, our all beef, all Wagyu beef, um, uncured hot dogs featured on food and wine. Um, digital, they proclaimed they were the best hot dog in the world. A bold statement and one that propelled his growth. And it, it went viral. It was the number one article on Apple News and MSN and Yahoo. And um, it was awesome. We gained about 15,000 new customers overnight, but it also almost killed the business. There's one and a half of us working here at that time. As Montgomery faced a challenge he didn't foresee, he says his past is what helped him in the present. That military work ethic um, just kind of kicked in and it was like, well, um, we're going to figure this out. And so we did. And what we gained out of that was a customer base that became um, very loyal to the brand. 95% of Casey Cattle Company's business is still online and the growth hasn't hit its limit yet. So we, we just come up closed on a on a property uh, in the Northland of Kansas City and we're hoping to break ground on a fulfillment center retail spot next year. Montgomery says he strives to not sacrifice quality for growth with a heart of service and the determination to never forget. If you just had the right perspective and kind of use that in your own life to go pursue something amazing in the honor of the people that can't, uh, I think it kind of changes that, that framework in your brain a little bit. KC Cattle Company not only helped Montgomery heal, but now this oasis is helping his fellow brothers and sisters in arms do the same. I wake up every day and I feel like I have a perfect purpose and you know I'm able to to have a company that's able to provide for not only me now, but also you know a few other veterans that believe in the mission that we're doing out here. From knowing nothing about raising cattle to building a business rooted in purpose, Montgomery says he lives with no regrets. Instead, his purpose fuels his mission to not just unite consumers with the products he raises, but fellow veterans with their purpose in life. You can find more about Casey Cattle Company's Wagyu beef and other products raised by heroes and veterans by visiting caseycattlecompany.com. When we come back, we have much more to talk about in our marketing roundtables. Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report this weekend. Well. You know, you talked about the widening basis, uh, Naomi and, and, and Bob. I mean, you both hit on the changing basis scenario. But when you look at some of the, the issues that we're still having after Hurricane Ida and all of the issues that we saw at the Gulf, I mean, it's not like export and that business has fully recovered, Naomi, right? I mean, we are still in the process of repairing some of that damage. Yeah, to what I've heard, we have maybe half of the facilities back up and running to some capacity in the Gulf. And so the, the basis levels, as Bob was pointing out, are starting to show that. But what's different is how basis is being treated up in the Dakotas, in the Pacific Northwest. It does seem like there's going to be some more demand to get product to China through the Pacific Northwest. The Dakotas basis has been strong, and it's actually what I've heard is strong from now until the end of the year. I've also heard that Canada is coming in to buy North Dakota and South Dakota agricultural products just because of the extent of their drought. So basis is something that's going to be, I think, just such a different unfolding scenario for various parts of the Midwest. And so it'll be something to very much be watching as we go forward. 
Yeah, I mean, we're going to be watching that as we see typically our export business for corn and soybeans really, you know, pick up in the Gulf. So when you look at China and that being a major buyer, will China keep buying? That is the big question. And, and Bob, do you have any signs that say one way or the other? Well, their national person in charge of all the China long-term plans for hog production just announced that they're going to reduce their five-year plan from 40 to 45 million uh, hog sows down to 37. So they're tightening in their number there. Uh, they're releasing uh, fertilizer domestically to try to increase their yields. So you could suggest that they, the demand side for corn and meal in, in China is not going to grow. It's going to be stable. And then if you, depends what USDA does in reference to the REM credits, I think there was some false stories came out yesterday. But I think that the current administration wants to move towards more solar energy and green energy rather than the biofuel energy for electricity. And unfortunately, as once we get all these electric cars out here and the tractors run electric and we don't have any electric gentrification, electric costs are going to go through the roof. And so on-farm power generation is going to become, I think, a necessity. I find almost comical back in the 18th century, about a third of the uh, food consumption produced by a farm was used to feed animals. We could revert back to that same philosophy where a farm operation or cooperative raises corn and, and to basically for fuel to run the tractors because they can't afford the gasoline at the, at the pump. Yeah, and speaking of input costs, Naomi, I mean, how does that need to be factored in when you are looking at exactly what your marketing game plan should be right now? Uh, the inputs have, of course, increased already so much. We're hearing that the fertilizer costs have truly nearly doubled from year ago levels. So that really takes out all of the excitement of seeing $5 corn futures on the board for next year because it's not that the farmer's going to necessarily be receiving it because those input costs are so high. We're expecting seed prices to go higher. And of course, energy prices, as Bob hit on, to go higher as well. So we'll either need to I mean, quite frankly, see the grain futures prices work higher or some of these inputs back off. And so producers are going to be doing a lot of pencil to paper right now to decide what is best for their operation. We're hearing a lot more possibility of double crop acres. In the Dakotas, I'm hearing that they're going to go back to maybe some of those more traditional crops for the Dakotas, like sunflower, canola, um, barley, and things like that to try to spread out some of the costs that way. So um, producers are doing a lot of math right now to know what's best for their family and their farm and the inputs absolutely just continue to soar. Naomi, Bob, thank you so much for joining us this weekend. We appreciate it. Stay tuned. We have a lot more to cover this weekend on U.S. Farm Report. Technology is a U.S. Farm Report special report is brought to you by John Deere. Well, ag tech continues to evolve, and while some ideas that were around a decade ago were still just ideas, many of the concepts and systems may already be at play. This weekend, we explore why with technology is the future. Robots taking over farm fields, autonomous tractors planting crops, these futuristic views of technology that surfaced a decade ago may actually be a glimpse at what's already reality today. We're seeing on average a 77% reduction in uh, chemical use on those fallow ground acres. This sea and spray technology is just that, only spraying when weeds are detected. And the concept of machine learning is one that could be the base for more ag tech advancements in the years ahead. A brand new 
autonomous platform for scout and apply based on the site-specific insect incidence and severity. This autonomous vehicle was built by researchers at Kansas State, packed with powerful technology to scout fields. We are going within the rows. We can see the underneath of the leaves and we can assess uh, what the crop needs, whether it is chemical or insects and you know, management and all that. Technology tools like this may also relieve one of the biggest pain points for farmers, labor woes. Can I replace labor with potentially technology, giving me whether that's scouting insight so I don't have to send someone to the field, or you know, we're talking about automation in the machines, almost robotic. You know, is there a time in my operation where I might have to, to basically have a machine that drives itself? And we're seeing that. The Purdue CME Ag Economy Barometer in June found nearly two-thirds of respondents expressed either some or a lot of difficulty hiring adequate labor, compared to just 30% in 2020. This facility in Indiana grows lettuce autonomously with a human never touching the product they produce. And while growers of everything from lettuce to asparagus are seeing robotics answer the need, Rantizo, a company that uses drones to spray crops, is bringing technology-based solutions in traditional row crops as well. In traditional application, you end up spraying the entire field, but for Rantizo, our specialty is actually site-specific application. Based in Iowa, Rantizo's technology can fly and apply everything from pesticides to micronutrients, even interceding cover crops. We feel that technology in the ag space is really just going to ramp up with more investment, more adoption. Indiana-based company Tyrannus works with ag retailers to use precision technology and drones to scout fields. We bring insights, actual leaf-level precise insights from their fields to their mobile app. Mike DiPaolo says by using aerial imagery and AI-driven technology, the Tyrannus platform can cover more than 100 acres in just six minutes. And we can do it at sub-millimeter resolution, which means you can act on it. Our deep learning with artificial intelligence and computer vision, we have over 50 million images at high resolution. While Tarana says the tool is helping farmers, it's also easing some of the scouting pressure on ag retailers today, as those retailers are also diving into the digital evolution in ag. We use Amazons, we use the Googles. I mean, farming is, is going under the same um, evolution. So I think farmers want to be recognizing that. From selecting seed to making marketing decisions, those decisions will be even more precise. Can you do a predictability based off of history? Uh, we've had these conditions and this will be the outcome. Just looking at, uh, you know, it's all data, so just crunch the numbers, run it through, and uh, see what the outcome might be. Decisions that may also stem from automation. If we can automate that process of cleaning yield monitor data, if we can automate the process of analyzing data, then that's going to be the key to the future. A Farm Journal Technology survey found today 77% of farmers say they do not currently collect detailed machine data, such as transportation time and fuel use, an area that has room to grow. You know, I think we can get down to uh, maybe row by row on our, on our corn heads and, and looking at uh, you know, what machine impacts are, what the planners do, what the tillage passes do, look at a lot more uh, uh, minor data, if you will. We gotta get the big data right first and then we'll move down to the, the, the smaller stuff that we can actually uh, affect. Well, we've explored everything from calculating the ROI of technology to how you can become even better at harvesting data. You can find all of those stories in our Technology Is series by going to agweb.com technology. 
All right, the chase to capture carbon and curb climate change. Customer support is next. Farmers and greenhouse gases. Well, carbon markets are the buzz right now. The House Ag Committee even holding a hearing on the topic in Washington this week. And it's a topic also in this week's customer support. I received an informative and thoughtful letter regarding my comments. Farmers are more interested in curbing greenhouse gases in order to receive possible subsidies, not environmental concerns. It was sent by Steve Reinhardt, a director of the United Soybean Board. Now, I will append his entire letter to the web version of this commentary, but will address only one point from his response today. The U.S. soy industry strives to be a global leader in sustainability primarily by increasing land and energy use efficiency and reducing soil erosion and greenhouse gas emissions. We work for the land to be better than the year before in soil health, nutrient management, water use productivity, and other ways to ensure soybean farming remains a sustainable endeavor now and in the future. United Soybean Board invests in production research related to cover crops, conservation stripping, and no-till that can decrease on-farm GHG contributions. Well, thank you for the letter, Steve. I don't like to get into a back and forth on customer support, but I will point out Two problems I see with statements like this from farm and commodity organizations. First, there are never any numbers to show that how widespread such practices are or the trends. At least I've never found them. The best number for no-till, for example, is about 17% of the acreage, and that's years old in Illinois. As I've said a few dozen times, if you don't measure it, you can't manage it. Judging from local tillage practices, conversations with farmers, and booming sales of equipment like vertical tillage machines, tillage is where it's happening now. In the last few years, I've seen more tilled soybean stubble than I have in decades. And if my guess is right, the whacking price increase last winter will prompt even more fall anhydrous ammonia application. I think the tillage trend is up, and cover crops may have peaked. Second, I find it ironic, if not hypocritical, for organizations to profess concern for greenhouse gas emissions when I find no evidence the majority or even a significant minority of their members believe in anthropogenic, man-made climate change. Again, I would be happy to be proven wrong, but judging from the emails and conversations I get when I just mention global warming, I think our industry is mostly climate deniers. For such a group to suddenly embrace carbon capture would suggest they are not doing it for environmental reasons. These claims to virtuous action are for public consumption more than information, I think. Good public relations are important for a subsidized industry, but unless there is credible proof that statements match reality, they may be little more than puffery. Well, last week at Kansas State, Dr. Rice, a Nobel Peace Prize winner, says no-till and cover crops are two very effective practices for capturing carbon and can actually reduce emissions by as much as 50%. And we'll post that entire letter from our viewer that outlines the partnerships that soybean growers are creating to be at the forefront of climate conversations. That will be on agweb.com. All right, when we come back, some country stars continue to farm on while supporting FFA. That's next. Well, he's a fresh face to country music, but as a senior in high school, he found fame on American Idol. And just when I get you off my mind. I, I joined the FFA whenever I was about, when I was a freshman, I joined the FFA. I knew 
right then I was going to be a part of it. And uh, certainly, certainly can't deny the fact that FFA has helped me grow as a person and uh, learn who I am. I definitely owe that to the FFA. Alex Miller just signed a recording contract with the Nashville label this week, and you can hear Alex's story and how his farming and FFA roots continue to impact his career, plus see Alex's electric performance in action by checking out the Farm on Benefit concert on agweb.com. Now, it aired Monday on RFD, but it's a show that you won't want to miss. So again, you can catch it right now on agweb.com, and it's a way to help raise money for National FFA Foundation. Well, that does it for U.S. Farm Report this weekend. Thank you so much for joining us. Be sure to join us again next week as we are on the road from the World Dairy Expo. We actually have a taping Thursday morning at 8 a.m. from the Dairy Expo. We will talk all things milk markets, dairy markets, the amazing exports, and if the volatility will continue. That discussion happens live at the World Dairy Expo next week. So we hope to see you there. U.S. Farm Report is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast.